I started my uh, career in the late 1990s at Morden Grenfell Asset Management in uh, London. And I was a sort of first generation technology specialist, which meant that I was in the right place at the right time for the internet bubble, which was great. And because my performance was so good, I won all the awards. I was the, you know, the the golden child fund manager. Um, in 2001, I launched a long short European tech fund called Avocet Capital, uh, which, you know, it was better than running a long only fund at that stage because the market had turned and uh, tech was very much out of favor. But even running long short, it was a market not unlike the one we've been in for the last year and, and a bit, where macro factors were driving markets, and that went on for a good few years. So my strategy, which was based on fundamentals, wasn't working, and my sort of natural inclination in in such situations is to take a step back and go to first principles. You know, what is it that I am doing that is helping, and what is it that I'm doing that is making things worse? I want to spend all my energy on doing the things that are going to help and none of my energy on doing things that are going to hurt. Um, but, you know, what am I even doing with my energy? Well, my job is to make decisions and I want to be spending all of my energy making the types of decisions that I'm good at making where I have evidence of a competitive advantage or of skill. So, you know, maximize return on energy expended. That's how I... I tend to think of things, and that's how I thought of it at the time. But the trouble was that the only measure of skill that I had as an investor was my recent performance or my performance track record at all, which wasn't that long. you know. And my investors were in the same boat. They were relying on past performance as predictive of future performance, despite the fact that it says in the small print, <laughs> you're not supposed to do that, right? Performance is a measure of outcome not a measure of skill. It's hopefully a function of skill, but there's a lot of luck and noise in there. Um, I, I found that, you know, in the absence of, of clarity around what it is that I'm doing that's helping and hurting, I shouldn't even be doing this. I don't have a path to continuous improvement. So I, I hung up my fund management shoes and said, I'm going on a quest to answer this question. How can I prove my investment skill to myself and to my investors, and how can I improve it on an ongoing basis? That is something that all fund managers need, not just me. Performance attribution takes performance and works backward to try to pick apart where it came from, okay? And it does that you know, relative to a benchmark. That's helpful in that it, it gives you a story to tell investors about what happened, right? But it doesn't tell you anything about what you should do differently in the future to get a better result. And that that was a huge frustration for me as a fund manager. You know, I'm looking for continuous improvement and data-driven feedback and performance attribution doesn't really give you that much to work with. Um, now, risk analysis does give you a little bit more. It looks at the portfolio's holdings to understand what risks the manager has been taking. And I'd suggest that in recent years in particular, fund managers have learned one very important thing from risk analysis um, that they can use on a go forward basis. And that is keep your eye on the factors that you're exposed to and be prepared to defend those exposures if they turn out to be wrong. And it's very easy to be wrong. Most fund managers are not factor managers. Um, 
you know, they're fundamental stock pickers, at least in the equity space, which is is where I live. Um, so, you know, it's, it's useful to teach you to keep your eye on your risk. But again, just because, you know, growth was in favor during that period and value was in favor during that period doesn't mean anything about the future. So behavioral analytics or uh, decision attribution in particular, which is a subset of behavioral analytics, um, it takes a, an even more fundamental approach. It looks at each investment episode, which is like each position held by the portfolio over a certain time frame, and it decomposes it into the underlying decisions involved. So there's a stock picking decision, right? That's important, but that's not the only decision the manager is making. They make an entry timing decision, decision about how quickly to get in, how big to go, a set of, of decisions on the way out about how fast to get out and when to get out. Um, so what this sort of analysis does is look at each type of decision and identify patterns, both patterns of consistent value add, which demonstrates skill, and patterns of consistent value destruction, which would represent um, bias potentially, but certainly scope for improvement. And that improvement is what we call behavioral alpha. The, the alpha that comes from mitigating your own behavioral biases and making fewer mistakes. So that's that gives you a, a sort of translation into the world as, as we know it in uh, performance land. Customers of the investment industry are buying future performance, right? That that's the that's the problem. <laughs> they're buying future performance, so they're looking for data that's predictive of that. And statistically, I'm sure most of you are aware that the only way to prove that past performance or even past decision making, for that matter, is predictive of future performance is to wait for the manager to amass a 20-year track record of performance. You know, you need a lot of data points. And to do that across managers is pretty much impossible given the amount of data required and the, the duration of manager careers and you know the fact that people move around. So I put to you this: let's just let go of performance, put it to one side. Okay. Let's again take a step back and think about this. It stands to reason that an investor who makes profitable decision, whether you are looking at that relative or absolute, just make sure you keep doing it the same way each time. Okay. An investor who makes profitable decisions more than 50% of the time and whose profitable decisions tend to make more on average than their unprofitable decisions lose will outperform over time. It's it just logically, that is the case. So you can put performance to one side and say, all right, I'm gonna focus on making a profitable decision more than 50% of the time. And when I do, I wanna be more right when I'm right than I'm wrong when I'm wrong. And these are uh, statistics that are very simple, but very powerful in that they can be applied to uh, the overall investment episodes, but they can also be applied at the individual decision level or decision type level. Even. Um, so what we're talking about here are hit rate, which where I'm <laughs> over here in the US, a lot of people call that batting average. It's their, their baseball uh, uh, money ball reference. Uh, batting average or hit rate is the number of winning decisions 
divided by the total number of decisions. So you want to get more than 50% of those right. Uh, but hit rate on its own doesn't actually tell you that much. You know, it's very pa possible to have a high hit rate that gets eroded by a low payoff when your losers are losing a lot more than your winners are winning. You can actually underperform, even though you're you're right a lot. So that's no good. The payoff is really important. The payoff is looking at the PL or the relative PL of the average winner divided by the relative or, or absolute PL of your average loser. So when you're right, you want to be a lot right. And when you're wrong, you want to be only a little bit wrong. And that will give you a payoff over 100%. So when we're looking at uh, decision attribution, what we're saying is, you know, let's compare you with chance, you know? That's the alternative, by the index, throw a dart at a dartboard, whatever. <laughs> Every fund manager is up against chance in proving skill. Chance would give you a hit rate of 50% and a payoff of 100%. So a fund manager's job is to consistently make decisions that do better than what would be achieved by chance. This is, is the Behavioral Alpha Benchmark, which is a new tool that we've developed to compare managers on the basis of their decision-making skill. And this is what it looks like for the three years ending 31st of March, 2022. Um, each dot on there is a long-only equity portfolio and each one is, is being measured against its stated benchmark. So there are 88 of them there. And the top five most skilled are the red ones. Um, we announce those each quarter. There, there are two things that are interesting, I think, to point out. One is the fact that while managers hit rates, which is along the x-axis here, the, the hit rates are in a pretty tight band, you know, and in practice, you, I tend to see hit rates that are in the, the mid 40s to the mid 50s, let's say, on average. Um, you know, there's nobody's getting a hit rate of 70%. That's not a thing. And very few people would have, who is a professional fund manager have a hit rate below 30%. Um, so it's, it's, you know, hard to distinguish yourself on the basis of hit rate. Um, but the payoffs, the, the y-axis here, that's a much wider dispersion. Um, and that is, uh, something that we've we've seen be very consistent. Um, the uh, other thing to point out is that for this period, 64% of the managers added value at their portfolio level through the decisions that they made during that period. Um, so then you're talking about a rolling three-year uh, timeframe. That wasn't actually the case in last quarter's ranking. Last quarter's ranking again, rolling three years, but it included the COVID quarter, you know, the initial COVID quarter. So it's quite interesting to see uh, how the, the average moved post-COVID, people's decision-making in general uh, was more likely to add value, which is not that surprising considering how dramatic that all was. Um, but you'll notice that the median hit rate was only 47% regardless. So you know what what i said before is true the the there's a consistency to the fact that payoff is what separates the best managers from everybody else hit rate you know a really good manager has a high hit rate and a high payoff and those five uh red dots will most likely have that but you can make up for a lot 
by having a really good payoff. And, and that's about sizing. It's about loser management. You know, it's about knowing when to fold them and all of the behavioral biases that, that come with that. So decision attribution analysis is uh, clarifying uh, a few important things. Whether a manager is a skilled de decision maker, um, it makes it possible to drill in and understand which types of decisions a given manager is strongest at and where is there room for improvement, which is helpful to the manager, if nothing else. Um, and it makes it possible to compare a manager's decision-making skill with their peers, regardless of what happened last quarter performance-wise, um, which is a, you know, it's a different way of looking at it. And, and we found it's very well received in uh, both the manager and the allocator communities because they're looking for, you know, something fresh, something that's coming at this performance thing from a different angle. Now, you know, we're talking about human fund managers here and human human fund managers uh, are no less human than anybody else and therefore are susceptible to biases. Um, you know, the, the extent of certain biases that you see amongst professional fund managers compared with retail investors will be different, but, you know, human fund managers fall prey to the same things about loss aversion, about, um, uh, the endowment effect, anchoring, all of these biases that we read about, this goes on. And, and you know, the question is, all right, can you show me myself doing it when I'm doing it and then help me stop doing that? That's, that's what the fund manager wants. Um, and that's what we do. Um, but, you know, it's worth pointing out, this isn't like a one-to-one -one mapping of investment behavior to a specific bias. You know, I could talk about a zillion different examples but let me give you one and you can, uh, you know, one that we chalk up to the endowment effect, but that, uh, you know, you might uh, have a different view about. So here it is. Many investors exhibit a tendency to overstay their welcome. So what I mean by this isn't actually holding on to losers for too long. It's about holding on to winners for too long, which, you know, you're supposed to be long-term investors, right? Well, yeah, but there's a, such a thing as too long term and it can be very damaging. And we, as I say, we uh, attribute this to the endowment effect, which I imagine uh, many of you are very well versed in. But for those who aren't, the most famous example of the endowment effect comes from a study done by Daniel Kahneman and Jack Netch and Richard Thaler, in which they gave half the participants a coffee mug and then offered them the opportunity to sell it or trade it uh, for an equally valued alternative. And the and basically said, those who have a mug, you can sell it to these guys who don't have a mug. How much are you willing to sell it for? And the mug owner said, $7, $7.12. Um, I'll sell for $7.12. And then they said to the buyer separately, how much would you be willing to buy this mug for? $2.87. So less than half the price. That's a big spread in the market for coffee mugs. Uh, but the point is that the mug owners, the only difference between them was that the mug owners owned the mug. And so the mug owners were overvaluing the mug purely on the basis of their ownership and within minutes, you know, had got attached. And that is the endowment effect. And that is also what happens sometimes with stocks. 
um, we did a, a research report on this that was published in the Journal of Investing. And basically in summary, we looked at 43 different portfolios of stock ideas over 14 years. So like 10,000 different individual ideas to see whether there were patterns in how alpha accumulated during the life of each idea. And what we found was that each investor's ideas had an alpha life cycle and four major profiles emerged. There was at the top left, what we call the linear accumulator. So these are positions that uh, we all dream of. You know, they, <laughs> you get in, they go up in more or less a straight line and then you get out. And maybe you, you leave some money on the table, but it was good. Um, to the right of that, you have the hopeless romantics. Those are the positions that perform really well early in their lives, but then end up giving that all back and then some. You know, we hang on far too long and we live to regret it. Um, the coasters in the bottom left are similar to the linear accumulators, but the exit timing is worse. So these are positions that they generate good incremental alpha for the first half of their lives, and then they do very little during the second half. And often the manager says, well, I'm, I don't get out because I don't have a better idea on the other side. Okay. And then finally, you have the round tripper. This is where <laughs> what goes up then comes down. You, you make a lot of money and you give it all back. Um, now, the overarching uh, pattern there, I, I would ask you to guess, but I'm just going to cut to the chase. It looks a lot like the round tripper, right? It's, it's like a coaster with a a lot of profits warnings at the end. <laughs> um, but the point is, on balance, you know, this is why fund managers aren't aren't active managers are not outperforming net of fees, right? They they are outperforming net of fees until they're not, um, until they give it all back. And so and what we found was that on average, these portfolio managers were generating over 120 basis points of alpha per annum at the portfolio level during the first half of their position's lives per, per position, but then giving it all back at the end. And it wasn't so much that they had to call the exact top, because who can do that? But they actually had an, an average of six months in which to act. So that second half of the life is pretty long. You know, you could have preserved 120 basis points of alpha per year if you just sometime in that six months got out of that position. So our, our quest becomes how do you help a manager do that? And, and uh, I'm conscious of the time, so I don't want to get too deep into it. But other than to say, you can nudge somebody. OK, these aren't nudges like uh, you read about in, in uh, Thaler and Sunstein's work, you know, subtle corralling. No, this is an, a notification that says, here's a position that where this might be happening again. Time to ask yourself some questions. You know, not and, and you can decide what the questions are going to be, but these are this is about getting you to move from system one brain into system two brain for those who, who've read Thinking Fast and Slow. Like make a deliberate decision because in the past you've destroyed value by not making a deliberate decision at a moment when it was time. And then we measure what happens. And, and again, I, I don't want to drag you into the, the weeds too much, but this is an area for you to study further if you're, if you're interested. What we're looking at here on the left are all the sell decisions that this fund manager made during a certain period, not on the back of the nudge. 
And on the right, you have all the cell decisions that they made on the back of this alpha decay nudge, as we call it. And what you can see there is that the ones on the left, the hit rate is over 50%. So, you know, that's good. But the payoff is very low, 61.9%. Remember, we want to be over 100. And that's because you can see a few of those little pluses all the way to the left. These were like big whoppers of, of bad decisions at the time anyway. Um, whereas on the right, you can see the stats are much better. The hit rate's much higher. The payoff's much higher. This is that fund manager making these decisions. It's not a computer telling them what to do but it's a computer sort of jogging their mind into thinking a little bit harder and, and you know, following their process at a time when bias would have otherwise led them not to. So uh, just to, to skip back, what have, we, what have we covered here? Well, we've established that an investor's job is to make skilled decisions and to beat chance, right? We've talked about how decision attribution analysis measures that. It's holding up a mirror and showing us our decision-making strengths and weaknesses. And we all have decision-making weaknesses. We're humans and we have bias. But a human who wants to improve can be nudged into making slightly better decisions slightly more often. That adds up. And that is continuous improvement in investment skill. So all of that begs some questions that I, I just want to plant in your heads for you to ask yourselves if you're investors or, or ask the managers that you're selecting or that you've allocated capital to. Do you have a data-driven feedback loop on the quality of your investment decision-making? Like, How are you measuring your own skill? And do you know which types of decisions you're good at? It's a question to ask. Most, most people are going to say no. Um, what do you do to continuously improve your process? You know, people will have an answer to that, hopefully, but is it a good answer? You know, I, I think whether it's a, a manager you're hiring to run money or an employee that you're hiring to work for your company, you should only be hiring continuous improvers. They have a competitive advantage. And then I'd also suggest asking, how do you mitigate your own behavioral biases? And, and people sometimes do have measures in place for that. But then the question is, okay, how do you know whether that's working? Maybe they do. I, I, I'm always very interested to hear what people's answers to these things are. So uh, that's my recommendation to uh, take away with you. And if you want to uh, learn more, a little homework. Uh, we've got three articles here that are, one is the paper, the life, Alpha Lifecycle paper, but the other two are quite short. Um, articles and, you know, they're worth a, a read and a think. And then you'll be in a position to make up your own mind about uh, this underlying premise that analyzing decisions, not results, is essential for better alpha. The, by far the most prominent observation, more than a question, Claire, for you to react to, Analyzing a decision without knowing its outcome is not overly useful. But once a result is clear, the process of the decision-making is most important to being able to repeat the success. How do you respond to that, Claire? Um, I mean, I would agree. We, in analyzing the decision, we are looking at the outcome, but we're not looking at the overall performance outcome. We're looking at the, out, the P&L outcome of that one decision. Um, 
And, you know, once you identify something like, you know, a common thing that we might see is that uh, people have a tendency to hold on to losers for too long. Um, or people have a tendency to hold on to things beyond, you know, to, to round trip. Um, in those cases, the question is, okay, what can, what can you do about that? How can you help somebody uh, use that information? And uh, the reality is that you can't do that for all of them, right? You, I mean, you can ask questions, and this is why it's not a computer just talking to a fund manager. It, there's a human, we call them an insight partner. They're a former fund manager like me, and I, I am the insight partner for some of our clients. And I'll sit down with them and say, so here's what it's saying. Let's discuss. Why do you think this is saying that you have a tendency to hold on to losing positions? Let's look at these, the worst offenders here. Here's a timeline of this stock. It started to deteriorate a good 18 months before you did anything about it. Talk to me about what the process was. I'm sure you noticed. So what happened there? And then they start talking about their process. And it, it might well be that, you know, there's a, an aspect of how they're running their team or how they're making decisions amongst themselves that they could tighten up and that will, you know, affect the, the speed at which they they make their decisions. So um, I think it is important to understand the underlying process, but you got to start with something. You need You need the data point as opposed to going straight for the process and saying, well, I think we're doing this wrong. It's like, what are you basing that on? The fact that you underperformed last year, like that may or may not be related. <laughs> we don't know. So there's a follow up here and I'll ask you to just uh, give a brief comment and then we'll follow the material up with you. And perhaps as part of this, just wrap up uh, with half a minute of summary, Claire, please. Should we view investing purely as an exercise in logical decisions or decision making? Do you see a role for emotion in the investing process uh, coming from the Australians who don't like hopeless romantics? Uh, but what's your comment? I, I definitely, well, whether or not we want it to be the case, there is a role for emotion in the investing, uh, in the investment process. Um, denying it is a very bad call. And it's unfortunately something that a lot of fund managers struggle with, right? They, they've not been trained to be emotional creatures. And that can mean that they don't even recognize their own, own emotions when they're feeling them. They can be kind of blind to them. Um, and emotions carry information. You know, if you can be smart about understanding what emotion you're feeling and recording that, you can connect the dots between, you know, sometimes when you start to feel a certain way, that is a sign of something that you, you know, there's a pattern there and you should be aware of it. And there's a, a coach called Denise Scholl who's done a lot of work in uh, this area uh, in particular around understanding the information that's in your in your emotions and also the blockages blockages that you know get created. Um, and and there's academic research also that backs up this idea that uh, people who can distinguish between different emotions that they're feeling, particularly negative emotions, uh, tend to make better risk decisions, uh, which is interesting.